I think one of the oldest and most important questions that uh, anybody can ask, anybody of faith can ask, is um, how can an all-powerful, loving God allow evil and pain and injustice uh, not only to exist in this world, but seemingly to thrive in this world? Why would God allow a world with war and abuse and hatred and racism and all of the dark parts of our experience um, I think if you were to survey many people who are agnostic or, or atheists, the main reason they don't believe in God has to do with this, this question in one form or another. Uh, you know, the existence of evil and suffering and how that doesn't seem to square with the idea of an all-powerful, uh, loving, good God. And uh, many people of faith have wrestled with this too uh, as well. Um, this is an ancient question. There was a philosopher who lived about three centuries before Jesus, named Epicurus, and, and he talked about this issue. And he had these, this series of statements that he believed kind of defined the question. So I want to go through these real quick. He said this, If God is willing to prevent evil but unable to stop it, then he's not all-powerful. And then he said, If God is able to prevent evil but not willing to do so, then he's not good. And then he said, if God is able and willing to prevent evil, then why is there evil in the world? And then finally, he said, if God is unable and unwilling to prevent evil, then he's not God. And I think that some of those questions give expression to some of the deeper questions about God that people have even today. Many of us have probably wrestled with forms of these questions. But when we consider the Bible as a whole... Uh, when we look at certainly the message of Jesus, we can come to a place of understanding on these questions. And it really all has to do with free will. It has to do with free will. God has given each of us free will. And his goal uh, that we see throughout Scripture is that he wants to bring, God wants to bring the maximum number of people freely into a relationship with him as possible. The maximum number of people freely into a relationship with him. And for that to be the case, he has to allow the possibility of some people not choosing him. And instead choosing their own ways. And in some cases choosing evil. Causing pain and suffering to themselves and to others. God did not create us as robots with no choice. So the existence of evil does not prove that God isn't good or all-powerful. And really, are we in a position to judge how God orders his world? It may be the case that a world with free will, which allows the possibility of evil, is the best way for God to bring the maximum number of people freely into a relationship with him. We see all throughout Scripture, certainly in this series, that these kinds of questions uh, we still contend with and we wonder about. Um, and today we come to uh, the prophet Habakkuk, and he's going to address some of these questions. And I think he's going to give voice to a lot of the struggles and concerns that we have, questions that we have. I love Habakkuk. It, it deals with these uh, really deep fundamental questions of faith. If you're familiar with the Bible, Habakkuk is very similar to Job. Um, So some similar themes are covered. I also like Habakkuk because uh, his name has two K's in a row, like my last name, Loxmo. So that's just kind of cool. He's like the only Norwegian prophet in the the Old Testament. (laughs) I just made that up. It would have been cool, though. Uh, So if you brought your Bible, um, turn to Habakkuk. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. This is kind of the part of the Old Testament we've been in. 
this summer. It's called the Minor Prophets. Um, we have Bibles on the table. If you don't have one, uh, feel free to take one with you. I mean, you can take that home if you want. We'd love for you to, uh, to have that. Um, Habakkuk was written, this book was written about seven centuries before Christ. During a time of turbulence, uh, God's people, the Israelites, were dealing with all sorts of suffering. Um, some of it was a result of their choices. Some of it was just kind of coming externally to them. And uh, just to give you a sense of what was going on, you had Israel, which is down here in the blue circle, and then these two great empires here to the east, uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, that were just had their sights set on Israel. And, and it just seemed like a foregone conclusion that Babylon is coming, and they're going to take over. And so there's all this fear and anxiety in Israel and wondering what God's up to. People were worshiping other gods. They were turning their backs on God. And they were kind of asking these questions. Why does God's justice seem to be so inconsistent? I mean, you know, we're people of Israel. We're his people, and yet we're going through all this. And then these evil pagan empires are thriving. Like, that doesn't all make sense. And so the, the prophet Habakkuk, what he's going to do is have a conversation with God. It's very unique. He, he's having a dialogue directly with God. In, in many of the other prophets, it's more like God is giving a message to his people through the prophet. In this case, we just see him talking to God directly. And so uh, it's very kind of one-on-one. It's very personal. Um, it deals with these really kind of intellectual questions, very emotional uh, book as well. And I think it has some very powerful lessons for us as we think about these, these questions. So let's jump into it. Habakkuk 1.1. We'll look at a, f- a few verses here to start out. It says this, the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. And I want you to highlight this next sentence if you're taking notes. How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? And then highlight this one. Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. I find those questions to be very modern sounding. You know, he's essentially saying, God, why won't you intervene? Do you see what's happening in our world? Do you see all the pain and injustice and suffering? What are you doing? Why do you allow this to continue if you clearly have the power to stop it? It's this shocking honesty, really, from the prophet directly to the Lord. And I think this is the thing for us to miss, just even from these, or not to miss, from these um, first four verses, is that Habakkuk, in the depths of despair and questions and wondering, he turns toward God with his questions in his time of trial. Uh, He does not allow the presence and the existence of evil or injustice to lead him to the belief that God isn't real or he doesn't care. He turns toward the Lord with his questions, a, a, a God that he believes loves him and is involved and is listening. And I think we need to remember his example, when we experience real personal struggles and trials, and when we observe evil in the world, that's not a time to turn away and say, well, God must not be real, or he must not care. That's a time to turn toward him and ask the blunt, honest, real questions as Habakkuk did. 
So to get practical for just a second, what does it mean to turn toward the Lord? Um, a few things. Uh, you, reading his word is always a great place to start. God has taken the time to tell us what he's like and what he hopes for us. And he speaks to us supernaturally through scripture. And so you go to scripture and you say, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know more about you. I want to understand. Teach me. And you have that posture of learning toward his word. So that's one thing. You can also pray. Speak to him. And it doesn't have to be this overly formal thing. It can just be talking to him in the same way that Habakkuk is just, he's just talking. He's unfiltered. These are my questions. You can just talk to the Lord that way and also listen. That's an important part of it. Listen. You can bring a brother or sister in Christ or a mentor or uh, a pastor into that moment. If you have a tough question or you're struggling with something and you're reading scripture or you're praying and you're like, I just can't get my head around this, you bring someone else into the equation and say, you know, I'm wrestling with this. Would you help me uh, understand this? Do you have any wisdom for me? You know, we're not meant to wrestle with the tough questions on our own. And someone may come to you and say, can you help me uh, deal with this and ask these questions? And we, we need to be there for each other. So Habakkuk turned toward the Lord in the difficult times, toward the Lord, not away. And what an example he set. Um, so Habakkuk asks these tough questions. Now we see God's reply in verse 5. God says this, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For, and I would highlight the rest of this phrase if you're taking notes, I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe. Even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to see his dwellings not their own. This is a moment where God's wanting Habakkuk to grasp that, you know, God is God and we're not. He does things that, that, that we don't understand. I always come back to these verses in Isaiah for this perspective. Isaiah 55, God is speaking about himself and he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's saying, I see things you don't. I see the ripple effect of every decision across all of time and space and culture and generations. And God is saying to Habakkuk here, you couldn't guess what I'm up to if you wanted to. <laughs> I'm going to do something you would have never dreamed up. I'm going to use the Babylonians, yes, an unjust, evil group. I'm going to use them for my purposes to bring about my justice against those who've turned their back on me. They're going to, Babylon, they think that they're autonomous and powerful and indestructible. They're going to be the unwitting instruments in my hands for my purposes. As strange as that might seem to you, I can use even them to bring about what I want to on the earth. So in verse 12, we get Habakkuk's reply. I'm going to circle a few words here as we go through. Habakkuk replies, verse 12, Lord, are you not from everlasting? Circle everlasting. My God, my Holy One, you will never die. Circle Holy One. You, Lord, have appointed them, that's the Babylonians, to execute judgment. You, my rock, circle that, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. Circle pure. 
You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? So you see what Habakkuk's doing here. He's He's declaring, declaring, declaring God as he knows to be true, believes to be true about God. He is eternal. He is holy. He is pure. He's, he's a rock. Even in this time of, of turbulence, you know, God is his rock. And he knows these characteristics to be true of God, regardless of how he feels. And so Habakkuk is essentially saying, God, I understand who you are. You have the right and the power to decide what is just and the right to decide how to bring about your justice. I really don't have the right to question you. Having said that, I have a few questions. That's basically what he's saying. You see his emotional ups and downs in these verses. I know this to be true about God. I believe this, yet I don't understand. Let's keep going. Chapter 2, verse 1. Doesn't Habakkuk just seem like us? I mean, I read those verses and it's like, I just relate to that, where you can believe something to be true, but yet those questions are there. 2 verse 1. This is still Habakkuk speaking. He says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Um, So Habakkuk is saying... um, He's going to wait for God's answer on these questions. He's going to stand on the walls of the city, and he's going to look and see what's going to happen with Babylon. He's going to see what God's going to do. It's a posture of waiting and seeking answers. And now God is going to tell Habakkuk something really significant, starting in verse 2. So let's read a couple verses here. The Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But, and then highlight the rest of this, the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. God's got a message for Habakkuk. And he says, I want you to write this down. This is really important. I've got a message, and it's coming. It's going to come in my timing. It will, so just wait for it. There is a message coming. And then he says at the end of that, God says, the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Righteous, that word, uh, means just to be in a right standing with God. A person who's in a right relationship with God is going to live by faithfulness. That means that person will live, find life, eternal life, by faith. They will exhibit a trust in God that can weather the storms of life. Even in the face of the Babylonian invasion, God is saying there will be a remnant of the faithful that will be found trusting in God even in these dark times. They will have an exterior faithfulness that reflects an interior trust. They are in a right standing with God because of their trust in him. And it's a real trust, a durable trust that even in this tough time, it remains. The righteous will live by faith. I want to camp on that phrase for just a second. It's a very significant phrase that we just read, um, and I had you highlight, because I mentioned this earlier, Habakkuk's writing seven centuries before Jesus. Seven centuries later, in the first century, the Apostle Paul wrote Romans. And in Romans, he wrote all about how we are saved by placing our faith in Jesus. 
We are declared innocent of our sins because of Christ. We are not saved because of our moral striving or just trying to be a good person. We are saved by placing our trust in Christ for forgiveness. This is Paul's point in Romans. And really the whole book drives at that. And Paul quoted these words from Habakkuk as his jumping off point for the whole book of Romans. In fact, many scholars say that Paul's quote of Habakkuk right here, these words we looked at, is like the thesis of Romans. I had this seminary professor who used to say all the time uh, when looking at the Apostle Paul's writings, uh, he would say, Paul isn't making this up. You know, everything he was writing was based on, you know, what God had promised to do and was talked about in the Old Testament and is now coming true. And so uh, I want to read now just two verses from Romans where Paul used these words because it really helps us get a sense of what that means, the righteous will live by faith. Paul wrote this in Romans 1, 16 to 17. You need to turn there all. We've got it on the screen. Paul said, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's the good news about Jesus. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness, in other words, a, an ability to be in a right relationship with God, that is from faith, first to last, just as it is written. And then he quotes Habakkuk. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will find life, eternal life, by faith in Christ. Habakkuk was making this point seven centuries before Jesus came to earth. He didn't know at the time that God's ultimate plan for this was Christ. And now Paul is quoting Habakkuk in a sense saying Habakkuk didn't really know what this was going to look like. Now we know, and it was Jesus. So let's go back to Habakkuk and, and briefly wrap up. We'll read a few more verses and we'll talk about what this means. Habakkuk 2.20. Uh, just this, look at this one verse with me really quickly. Uh, Habakkuk says, um, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. This is a moment where Habakkuk is essentially saying, let's remember who we're talking about here. <laughs> let's remember who we're speaking to. You know, God is not our equal. Uh, it reminds me, of that scene, you guys may remember, it's an older movie, but in the movie Rudy, when he's trying desperately to get into Notre Dame, and he can't get in, and he befriends that priest, and they're having a conversation, and he's asking about God, and the priest says, uh, I've come up with only two hard, incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I'm not him. And, and I think that Habakkuk is kind of having a moment like that. I'm asking all these questions, I'm trying to understand but really, look, the Lord, he is holy. He's in his temple. He is in the heavens. Let the earth be silent before him. Let's remember who this is and listen to him. You know, the goal in prayer is, is not just to talk, say things to God. It's also to listen, to hear from him. We ask our questions in our time, but God gives his answers in his way, in his time. Let's read a few more verses, and we'll wrap up Habakkuk 3.16. Skip to 3.16. He says this, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently 
for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. I would highlight that. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. So Habakkuk closes with this um, simultaneous affirmation that the circumstances of his life are not good, but God is good. You know, he fears the invasion, the Babylonian invasion. It's also a time of economic devastation. It's an agricultural society. He's saying there's no fruit, there's no crops, there's no livestock. Like this is a really rough time, yet God is Savior and he is good and he is a source of strength. He lifts me up. There can be joy even in dark times, Habakkuk is saying. So what does all this mean? What should we conclude from this? Um, I have three key takeaways that I want us to think about. The first is this. uh, It's okay to ask God tough questions. It's okay to ask God tough questions. He can handle it. Don't turn away in cynicism or gloom, but even in pain, turn toward him. That's the example Habakkuk set. And so many people in Scripture, the Psalms set that example over and over again. So many biblical figures. It's, it's pain, it's suffering, it's real, and turning toward God in that. It's okay to ask the tough questions. It's good to want to understand. It's good to say, Lord, I want to understand you. I don't understand. Would you help me? It's okay to tell him you're struggling to believe something. That's not a sign of weakness turning toward God in a time of pain is a show of faith. It is a show of trust. I don't understand. This is painful. I don't get it. But here I am, Lord. Like, help me understand. That is a show of faith. That's a show of trust. Trusting that he's there. Trusting that he's listening. That he cares. So that's one lesson. Here's the second one. We kind of touched on this at the beginning. The presence of evil or pain is not evidence of God's absence or apathy. The presence of evil or pain is not evidence of God's absence or apathy. God created a world that that didn't have evil and suffering in it originally, but he allowed the possibility of evil to enter to preserve the precious possibility of us choosing to freely love him back. Suffering does not mean that God isn't around or doesn't care. In fact, the opposite is true, and we know this because of Jesus. When he, you know, when he uh, came to earth, I think sometimes we think of Jesus kind of just like floating around. It's like, yeah, yeah, he's a human, but like he wasn't really like us. He's kind of like floating a foot off the ground everywhere he went. He was real. He had a job. He had family. Some of his family did not believe in him. He had friends. He had, he had his disciples, his followers, but he also just had friends. Um, there was a family that lived near Jerusalem that seems to have been uh, very close to Jesus. 
kind of like family friends. They weren't his disciples. That, uh, they weren't among the 12, but they um, were just friends of his. And it was these two sisters, Mary and Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. And some of you may know the story. Lazarus uh, grew very ill. And so the sisters notified Jesus, hey, he's sick. You might want to help. Because guess what? Jesus is going around just healing people left and right. And he's obviously going to heal Lazarus. But then Jesus doesn't get there in time, doesn't seem that urgent about it, and Lazarus dies. And the response of the two sisters to that, uh, it, it, it just is so reminiscent of what we see in Habakkuk and that, that kind of attitude and questioning and wondering, why, why, God, do you allow stuff like this to happen? And so I want to read for you quickly the two responses. It's John 11 I'll just put it up on the screen. So Jesus uh, arrives basically for the funeral. And the first sister walks up to him and says, it says this, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? You can hear her question, you know, how could you let this happen? This is what you do, Jesus. He's your friend. What, what, what's happening here? And then you see the second sister, Mary, come. Similar reaction. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. He wept. This wasn't he was a little sad or there was like a lone tear rolling down his cheek. He wept over this situation. However grieved we are about death and loss and pain and injustice, you can trust that God is exponentially more grieved by it. And you see Jesus' empathy on display here. You see, when you wonder if God cares about suffering, it's important to remember that he came and suffered himself. He didn't sort of leave us on our own. He came himself and suffered with us, ultimately to suffer for us. He really does understand. In this case, Jesus was going to bring Lazarus back to life like five minutes later. And you know what he didn't do? He didn't say, don't worry about it, Mary Martha, like, I got this. Like five minutes from now, it's going to be good. He didn't say that. He entered into their pain with them and their suffering. And he wept. The fact that he was going to raise him to life didn't stop him from weeping. Because in this moment, it's bigger than just this situation for Jesus. You know, this is God in the flesh saying, this is not the way I want it a world with death and suffering and pain and loss. And he's thinking, I'm not just going to raise Lazarus to new life. I'm going to undo death itself. 
And so such a, a potent uh, manifestation of why he came, this situation with Lazarus. God is not impersonal. He is not theoretical. He is not distant. God personally entered into the mess of human history and walked among us. He experienced loss. He experienced pain and suffering and betrayal and disappointment and death and all of it and suffered himself to make a way for us to experience eternal life apart from any evil or suffering or loss or death. The presence of evil or pain is not evidence of God's absence or apathy. Absence and apathy. You look at Jesus, it's not absence, it's presence. It's not apathy, it's empathy. It's the exact opposite of what sometimes we assume. Number three, the third big takeaway is we live by faith. We live by faith. I'm going to talk for a second about what that means. Habakkuk said, uh, the righteous, those who are right with God, live by faith. That means they are saved, they find eternal life by trusting in God. Now, I don't have a slide for this, but if you're taking notes, um, I would encourage you to write this down. When we see the word faith in the Bible, think trust. That's a closer word in English to the connotation of the ancient words that they used um, is the idea of trust. Because in our uh, independent, achievement-oriented American culture, we very easily make faith a work. You know, it's like, Uh, something to get good at. I'm going to get really good at faith. I'm going to strive for this. You know, if I only have enough faith, God's going to do X, Y, Z. And you know what that does? That puts all the emphasis on you. It's like God just sort of waiting around going, let's see how much faith you have. Maybe I'll take an interest. That's not the biblical picture. It's trust. That's really closer to what the idea of faith in the Bible is, is trust And the emphasis in a trust relationship is the one in whom you put your trust. The emphasis is on God. He is trustworthy. And so you're not uh, holding on to control. You're giving up control and trusting in him. That's what faith looks like. And so this, we live by faith, means we find eternal life in the first place by placing our trust in Christ. We trust him to forgive us and save us and to make us new and, and that uh, it's not just a momentary thing, like we trust him once and we're saved and we check the box and we're getting into heaven, but that every moment, every day for the rest of our life, we continue to choose to trust him, to turn toward him for our growth, to grow and look more like him, to mature, to grow into Christ-likeness. And sometimes God uses tough things to do that in our lives. He uses painful things to grow us, and to make us look more like himself. I think the classic verses on this whole idea that we've been getting at with Habakkuk are in Romans 8, 28, and 29. I'm going to read them real quick. It says this. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For, in other words, because those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. We get hung up on verse 28. 28 gets kind of ripped from its context. And, and people get hyper-focused on the words, uh, God works for the good. And it leads people to believe that these verses are saying, you know, if you love God or he saved you, everything's going to be good in your life. And it's actually saying the exact opposite of that. 
the words to hone in on, and I would draw a little square around these or highlight them, are in all things. That's the point Paul's making. In all things, God works for the good. It's not saying everything's going to be good. It's saying in all things, God can make it good. All things include suffering and pain and injustice and evil. In all things, God can bring good out of it. He can bring his purposes out of it. He's in the business of restoration. He can turn a Roman cross, a symbol of the most cruel method of execution in history, he can turn that into the ultimate symbol of love. He can use pain and trial to make us look more like Jesus. That's what it says in verse 29. He's predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. And God can use all sorts of things to do that. Some of those things are really hard. He can use pain and trial for our rescue, for our restoration and our redemption. You can ask God the tough questions. The presence of evil, suffering, doesn't mean he isn't good or isn't there. Jesus proved that can't be true. And we find life in him by trusting in him. We live by faith. I want to close um, by doing something a little bit different. I want to close by reading, praying, a short psalm, Psalm 13. Um, You know, just a side note, if you're looking to um, deepen your prayer life, a great place to start is to pray the Psalms. And Psalm 13 is a great example of that. Psalm 13 beautifully articulates all the themes we've been talking about today. It simultaneously affirms the reality of suffering and God's goodness. And so I'm going to pray this psalm. I encourage you to bow your heads and, and pray with me. Listen to these words. And, and just internalize them. Try to hear them in your own voice. Offer them to the Lord as a silent prayer as I read them aloud. Let's pray. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes, for I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I've overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me.